Welcome to my podcast, The Mongols, Chinese Emperors. This is Episode 8, Fratricide and More. In the last episode, I know I covered a lot. We learned about Gagin Khan and his reign and assassination. I also spent some time discussing one of his protagonists, Tamuder, whose son was one of the conspirators involved with the coup d'etat to murder Gagin Khan and replace him. We know his uncle, Yesen. Temer succeeded him. Following Yesen's death, there was more coups and blood and the War of Restoration to bring the Khanite back to the Kulig Khan family. In this episode, the War of Restoration, or the War of Two Capitals, concludes and the Khanate is restored to the Kulig Khan family. But there is much more, including fratricide. I will conclude this episode with a wrap-up of the mid-Yuan period to the dynasty. At the end of the last episode, both sides were squaring off against each other, that is, the loyalist and the restorationist. The loyalist had stopped the restoration efforts of Altemer at the Summer Palace at Shangdu. At Beijing, the coup, or the restoration, had been successful and was in the hands of El Temur and his confederates. While the restorationists had the advantage and had better leadership at the start of the battle of the two capitals, the loyalists seemed to be in the more favorable position. The loyalists fought back and tried to take Beijing, and they got as far as the outskirts of Beijing. But the restorationists, led by Altemer, fought back and they turned the tide. In a brilliant move, Altemer's forces staged a surprise attack on Mongolia that was launched from Manchuria. And to many people's surprise, the restorationists received a lot of support and they were able to surround the summer capital at Chengdu. The Loyalists were caught off guard as their main military force was still at Beijing. The next day, after the Restorationists had approached the summer capital, it surrendered. Many Loyalists were arrested and executed. But the young monarch, Ragaba Khan, or Emperor Tianshan, was not one of them. He completely disappeared and was never found. His reign had ended. It was the shortest of any of the Yuan monarchs. There was isolated fighting by the loyalists for the next four years, but nothing ever came of it. 
The Loyalist resistance, however, was only part of the Restoration battle. The most dramatic and tragic episode of the entire Restoration process is coming next. And the stars of what's coming next were the two half-brothers. So a quick rehash. After the Restoration War, Tu Temer, the younger son of Kulig Khan, had temporarily filled in as the Khan, as the Great Khan, and the Yuan Emperor. For those keeping track, he would have been the 12th Great Khan and the 8th Yuan Emperor. He was waiting for his older brother, Kusala, to arrive and take over. Tu Temer took the Khanate and the dynasty with the understanding he would abdicate once his older brother returned. What I have not said was that neither Tu Temer or his accomplice Al Temer had any intention of turning over the crown to Kasala, and they believed they had justification for this betrayal. The only connection Kusala had with the throne was he was the oldest male heir to Kulig Khan. Other than that, he had no connection with China and took no role in the restoration efforts. Offering the throne to to Kusala originally was merely a polite, obligatory, and deferential gesture. Upon Kusala's journey back to China, somewhere near Karakoram, he enthroned himself in February of the year 1329 as the 13th Great Khan and the 9th Yuan Emperor. His emperor name was Ming Zong. Kusala also designated his half-brother, Tu Temer, as the crown prince. Tu Temer abdicated as that was the plan. He was, at that point, the great Khan for about four months. Kusala immediately began to appoint his own people into important state positions, and some of these were inimical to Tu Temer and El Temer. In August of the year 1329, the two half-brothers reunited in China. Four days later, Kusala was found dead. And on September 8, 1329, Tutema reassumed the role of Khan and Emperor for the second time. Certainly one of the most illegitimate reigns of the Yuan dynasty. Let me make it official. Tutemer's official name was Jayatu Khan Tutemer or the Yuan Dynasty Emperor Wenzong. And before I forget, in my construction of the Yuan Dynasty Emperor generational chart, it is a curious thing that all the missing or murdered great Khans came from the same fifth generation after Kublai Khan. Just saying. The official records state that Kusala Khan died of violence, perhaps poisoning. Kusala's son, years later, blamed Tutemer for his father's death 
Kusala's death was apparently the result of a conspiracy, masterminded, masterminded once again, and not surprisingly, by El Temer and probably some help from Tutemer. Remember the small boy, Raghava Khan? Yesin Khan's designated heir? Well, the official records do not disclose what may have happened to him, other than to state he went missing. Draw your own conclusions. To Temer Khan, or I guess I should refer to him as Emperor Wenzong, only had a four-year reign. But as you will hear, there was a lot going on. The key word that defines his reign and legacy is legitimacy. El Temer played a pivotal and powerful role in Wenzong's administration, and that probably is not a surprise. Wenzong appointed El Temer to multiple posts, including the influential post as the Grand Counselor of the Right. El Temer had vast power and influence as some have opined, more than the great Khan himself. And it seemed Altemer was a vindicative man. He oversaw a bloody purge against the Yasin Khan clan, the ones that first seized power after the murder of Gigan Khan. The purge was so total that Altemer attempted to cancel out any record of Yasin Khan's father, Gamala, so total, as well, that Muslims, who were favored by Yesen Khan, were boxed out of any important state positions within Wenzong's court. The Chinese, as well, were left out. We are not left with much from Emperor Wenzong's reign other than evidence of bribes and influence and deals he did to make sure he stayed as the great Khan and Chinese emperor. The one upshot to all of this schmoozing and payoffs was that Wenzong did manage to win over the non-Chinese Mongolian Khanates and reestablished himself as the universal ruler of the Mongolian Empire. Of course, he did not substantively mend the torn Mongol fabric. Rather, it was all purely political. The Mongolian Empire fabric had been divided for too long it was not going to come back together. But Emperor Wenzong's own insecurities and others' opinions as well about his illegitimacy hung over his reign like a dense fog. The illegitimacy whispers from the nobles and the elites caused him endless political headaches. During his short four-year rule, there were eight plots against him and his court. In many of those instances, the perpetrators were the royal princes and other high-ranking officials. Tu Temer clearly was not accepted. He also had to deal with several major natural disasters and uprisings. There were floods and droughts resulting in the displacement of millions of people. Southern China was a fertile ground of frequent disorders and violence. Before his reign, China had largely avoided internal rebellions. Though it would be unfair to completely blame these disorders on Tu Temer, it did show that in some areas of China, 
order and control was breaking down, particularly in the areas inhabited by ethnic minorities. The reasons for many of these uprisings is tough to identify, but there is some evidence the ethnic minorities had finally had enough of the harsh, repressive control and exploitation from the Mongols. It is clear the uprisings used enormous resources and at great financial cost. That only aggravated the Yuan government's shaky financial condition. Because Emperor Wenzong only had limited control of his khanate and dynasty, he tended to focus more on cynicizing his court. One reason for that was an attempt to repair his tarnished image as an illegitimate ruler. But that criticism may be too harsh. Tu Temer was one of the most learned and versatile emperors of the Yuan dynasty. He had a personal interest in Chinese culture and art. He was fluent Mandarin and calligraphy and knew Chinese culture and history. He was known for promoting Chinese rituals that had been abandoned by prior Yuan emperors. Perhaps his greatest achievement was his oversight, completion, and publishing of a grand compendium of all the important Yuan official documents and laws. Started in the year 1330, it was done 13 months later. All of the documents had been painstakingly translated into Mandarin to make the work accessible by Chinese. Unfortunately, the compendium was lost. Many parts of it, however, did survive as a consequence of their incorporation in the Ming Dynasty's encyclopedia later. The Ming, of course, succeeded the Mongols. Emperor Wenzong, or Tu Temer Khan, was obsessed with two things, his legitimacy and his succession. He intended to pass the Khanate to his eldest son and even prepared his son for it. But that son died soon after Wenzong had designated him as the heir. Wenzong attempted to name his second son, but Wenzong himself died before doing so. Tu Temer, or Emperor Wenzong, died in September of the year 1332 at the age of 28. On his deathbed, it is alleged he was remorseful for what he had done to his older brother, Kusala. He talked about passing the empire to his older brother's oldest son, Toghon Temer, rather than passing it to his own son. When the powerful El Temer, however, heard about this arrangement and knew if the crown was passed to Kasala's heirs, he would be through. Others, however, intervened, and El Temer was not able to control the outcome as well as he wanted. A compromise was reached. Instead of Emperor Wenzong Tu Temer's son, or Kusala's oldest son, Tog Hon Temer, the Khanate would pass to Tog Hon Temer's younger brother, Rinchenbal. He was six years old. 
So Rinchen Ball was enthroned at Beijing on October 13, 1332, to serve as the 10th UN emperor, and his emperor name was Ning Zong. He died, however, unexpectedly, after only 53 days in office. The door was now open for his older brother, only 13 years old himself, Tohon Temer, to become the great Khan and Chinese Yuan Emperor. The death of Emperor Ningzong and the enthronement of his older brother, Tohon Temer, marks the end of the mid-Yuan period. I mentioned before this period. It began after the death of Kublai Khan in the year 1294 and ended at the ascension of Tolkhon Temer in the year 1333, a period of 39 years. In that time, nine emperors had come and gone, an average of a little over four years for each. That should be the first thing that stands out about the mid-Yuan period. Too many emperors in a short period of time. How could there be consistency in political, cultural, and religious policy? There wasn't. Therein lies one of the problems from that period. Despite the fact that those nine emperors did stop the Mongol proclivity toward imperialism and expansionism, they all missed a golden opportunity to make a more positive and lasting legacy on Chinese culture and history. Kublai, by and large, left them with good, stable institutions and administrative apparatus. During those 39 years, China was generally free from foreign wars and missions of conquest and expansion. The mid-Yuan emperors even managed to establish old connections with severed Mongol Khanates of the old empire. So what happened? Obviously, the bitter and sometimes bloody political battles were a major factor to the less-than-impressive 39-year run of the mid-Yuan period. Of the nine emperors, six came to power only after violent, or disputed events. Two of the nine were murdered, another one officially missing. Each time, after a bloody purge followed, including, in some instances, a complete turnover in administrative personnel. Some of the emperors were a more Mongolian bent, and they could not make appreciable headway in China without lots of support from officials in China. In those instances, where more step-oriented rulers came to power, the constant and inconsistent policy changes, some inimical to Chinese customs, hurt the Mongol brand and hampered their ability to further improve the Chinese state. The inconsistencies between Mongol customs and policies and Chinese customs and policies was like rubbing two raw nerves together. Think back to when I spoke about Kublai Khan's balancing act that he was good at, at least in the first half of his administration. Not one of the subsequent emperors during the mid-Yuan period matched that. 
There were, however, positive aspects of Mongol rule from the mid-Yuan period. It was not all bad. One was their genuine efforts to sinicize the Mongols. During the mid-Yuan period, you get the impression the emperors were reluctant to go full Chinese. That may have been because they had to be careful not to let it appear they were repudiating Mongolian customs and culture. In the next episode, I'm going to take a one-episode detour away from the chronology to discuss some of the bigger picture circumstances pertaining to the Yuan government, trade in art, culture, society, its mark and brand. So thank you. It has been a pleasure.